Today's sermon text comes from John 18, verses 28 through 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat at Passover. So Pilate went outside and said to them, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take, take him for yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is, not, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his quarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After, this, uh, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man to you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. John chapter 18. If you haven't turned there yet, go, ha- go right ahead. Now, as you're turning there, let's pray. Father, you have prophesied nearly 3,000 years ago that there was to be one who would be born. A son would be given to us and the government would be upon his shoulders. And he is the one who would be called Mighty Counselor, Almighty God, Eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. And the end of his to the increase of his government and his rule and his reign. There will be no end. And on the throne of David, you will establish his kingdom. God, let us see how that is true. How your son has come as king. Not some distant king reigning far over there, over there, in matters in which we care not to be involved, but God, that he is reigning and ruling over us, whether we see it or whether we don't, God, whether we acknowledge it or whether we refuse to yet bow our knee in homage to this king. Let us, by your grace, see that your son is reigning and ruling over all things. As we come to your word, Let us see that you have given us the word of life. And there is nowhere else that we can turn. 
So God, with great humility, open our eyes to behold that your Son is reigning and ruling over all things. Amen. The precious jewel of England could not be held by the Romans. Remember, the, it was the Celts who were living in England at the time, the men who would show up naked to battle, dressed in, or painted in blue, and would fight off the Romans quite well. And so eventually, as the Roman Empire is decaying, they begin to let loose of these kingdoms far off, and England is one of them. And then the Celts, as they naturally do, just kind of fill the vacuum for the next several hundred years and take back their land. Until... Not the Romans, but some Germanic tribes begin coming. Those Anglo-Saxons start crossing over, moving north, and invading England. Now, a little uh, might be relevant to you now, maybe, perhaps. Uh, the Anglo-Saxons didn't fight many battles to invade England. The way they conquered England was through immigration. They just kept showing up, kept showing up, kept showing up, kept farming on the land, buying land, building cities, and before you know it, within several generations, it was theirs. So eventually you have this Anglo-Saxon, King Athelwolf, who's reigning over England. And uh, there's various houses and everything like that that's going on, but... He's, he's the, one of the main players here. And now you have these Vikings who are coming over from Denmark, coming up. And they, they got this name, the, uh, Viking would be to, they would go Viking, which means to conquer. So they have these low boats and they would come up the Names River and they would go up as far as they could. And then they would just begin to conquer the land. King Athelwolf was killed and his son, um, Albert. Alfred becomes king. And there's nothing he can do. The Danes and the Vikings are conquering and killing and burning everything. So he does, you see it in the Old Testament quite a bit, he gathers up all of the gold, all of the silver he can, and the Vikings have all their hostages. And he goes and he gives them all of the gold and silver to pay this ransom for these men that are being held hostage, and also as a tribute in which the Vikings said, yes, we'll, we'll pull back, we'll pull back. <clears throat> well, the Vikings gladly take the gold, gladly take the silver, and they did pull back for about two hours. They, they killed then, well, they got what they wanted, they killed all of the hostages, and then ran roughshod over England even some more. So King Alfred was forced to go into hiding. He goes and lives in the marshes of Somerset. And here it is. The king of England. Disheveled. He's poor. He's beaten. He looked nothing like a king. And as he's wandering around in these marshes, he eventually comes to this, these fine herders, these uh, pig uh, farmers. And he would go and he lived with them. He convinced them. He didn't tell them who he was because that would be... a great way to die. And uh, he shows up. And it was, <laughs> he's actually, so they, they, they bring him in to help. But this king who's raised as a king isn't much help um, inside the house. And there's stories of this lady, this woman of the house berating him because he keeps burning all of the food. And so he takes them 
And they have no idea through this winter and into the next spring before they go into the battles the next year and then kill all the Vikings and get their island back. They had no idea that they were living and that they were in the midst of a king. It's the same thing we see in our text here. Here is Pilate who has before him the king of all kings, and he has no idea. You look upon Christ, just as the way you look upon King Alfred as he fleeing. You look upon Christ and you see no semblance whatsoever. That you would see him and go, oh, there's kingly material. It's easy to miss it when he's poor and tired and beaten and alone. So what's our main idea? What are we going to be driving at? Is that very thing? Is that Christ is king? Christ is king and he's going to be reigning and ruling over his kingdom. He's the eternal king who's going to reign over his eternal kingdom. We're going to see that in several ways here. Verses 28 through 32. We're just going to be looking at the religious and also then the political opposition that's going to be happening here. You see the religious and their dialogue with Pilate and what's all happening there. And then next we're going to be looking at verses 33 through the beginning of 38. And you're going to be seeing that this kingdom of truth, of which Christ is king, this kingdom of truth is not of this world. And then finally, you're going to see how this innocent king, in this exchange with Barabbas, how this innocent king will suffer on behalf of the guilty. Let's go into the text here. Verse 28. Then... They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If the man were not doing evil, would we have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, that is to Pilate, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. In John's commentary, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. As you guys recall from two weeks ago, how we were talking about how Christ is in charge of all of that is happening here. This is not... Uh, a man who's being, as one of you characterized it, being swept away into this vortex towards the cross and he just kind of lifts his hands up. No, he sees the Father's cup placed down before him and he willingly walks towards this table and picks up the cup and drinks it himself. Then last week we saw how Christ, as the high priest, you see this Christ is characterized as a high priest in his exchange with the religious, most of the Sanhedrin at that time, and the, high, and the other high priests, Caiaphas and um, Annas. Those men are not spiritually, they're not morally qualified to have that title, that position, but they have it. And here is Christ who is the true high priest 
who will purge his people of their sins. And as that, is, that commentary is happening, you have in the backdrop Peter, who is then denying Christ. It's John's beautiful way of showing that even in the midst of those sins, Christ as the high priest can purge them and wash them clean. So now what we're seeing is Christ is not only the high priest, as you see in this exchange with the other high priest, but now you're going to see that Christ is a king and a man who has a kingdom as well in his exchange with Pilate. So they lead Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, two places, likely the palace of Herod or the Antonio Fortress. The time is probably 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., the morning of his crucifixion. Now, Pilate had sent out, remember, Pilate had sent out this small bandit of, small band of soldiers with Judas and with the other temple guard, and he's probably there awaiting their return, awaiting to see what will happen. And notice the irony here that has happened. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters for they, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. By John saying, eat the Passover, it's not as though Jesus and the disciples ate it early. There's a whole week of festivals that, that's happening afterwards. But you notice the irony here. They don't want to go in there. Exodus 12, you have to purge your house of all of the yeast. They're not just going to celebrate the Passover, but then this this week festival of unleavened bread in which you take all of the yeast out of your house so that you can recall and remember God delivering you out of Egypt in which you left in haste. You didn't have time for the bread to rise. You just cooked it in cakes and then off you went. Trying to outrun Pharaoh and his armies. And they were also forbidden by Pharisaical tradition to go into the house of the Gentile. You see this come up in Acts 10 with Peter and Cornelius. Do you see what kind of men these are? Do you see what's happening here? The irony of it all. They joyously, joyously are calling for the death of Christ. They stalk him like a beast that they want to take down. And they're willing to bind him up and bring him to Pilate and demand his death. And they also bring up the masses to call for his crucifixion, as we'll soon see, as they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Sure, they'll do all of that, but what do they not want? They do not want to be ceremoniously defiled. They can have the blood of Christ and it will soon be on their hands, and they don't care. They can have blood on their hands, but to go into a Gentile's house, oh heavens, no. Won't do that. Especially this time of year where there could be yeast in the house. It's easy to see it in others. But that same hypocrisy, the same hypocrisy dwells within all of us. There's the the ceremonial sins that we will never take part of. Sure, I'm going to be faithful to my wife. I'll be faithful to my husband. We, we educate our kids, don't we? Best we can. 
at private schools or at home, just lest they have the, the stink of the government upon them. We don't want that by any means. No, we don't want that. Will you even drop in hints? You hear it? Perhaps you do it. Drop in hints about family worship and how it's going. Oh, you know, we're really getting hung up on question 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism, you know. Boy, that one's really catching us. Pray for us, you know. We drop in, how we're blessed by God and we make more, but we can be more generous than others. Give more than those plebeians around us. Pray for them. But inwardly, we can be calling for the, we just have the same blood all over our hands. Brothers, sisters, beware. Beware of those who are outwardly commendable. Those who are outwardly commendable. Sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, will be inwardly condemned. Beware of those. So when you look to others, they'll be striving. Striving to see the fount of their actions. Look at their heart. And then when you look within... This is especially true for us pastors and elders. You have to ask yourself, are your religious affections, are your religious actions, are they manifested only when and so only so that others may see them? Or are they done entirely and wholly to your Father who sees and commends what is done in secret? So you see this, now this exchange that's going to be happening between Pilate and those of the Sanhedrin. He asked him, like, what, what accusation do you bring against this man? They don't have anything. So the response is, well, they don't give anything. Their response is, well, if he wasn't guilty, wouldn't we have done it? Would we have brought him to you? They don't have anything on him, and they know it. They know it. So Pilate says to them, Well, take him by yourself and judge him by your own laws. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And perhaps Pilate is maybe aware of the claims of Christ, this upstart rabbi. He has to keep a pulse of what's happening. There's this upstart rabbi traveling in the countryside with thousands of people following him. Probably has, probably has heard of these rumblings, of things going on. So if it's a religious matter, well then settle it in your own ways. But they, but they can't say, well, he's claimed to be the son of God, which is why they want to crucify him. They can't say that because there's no Roman law against claiming to be the son of God. They don't care about that. Just pay your taxes. Do whatever you want. Just pay your taxes. But they only want one thing, and that's death. They want death for Christ. And notice how they're willing to even subject themselves even to the Romans to bring this about. They say, it is not lawful for any of us to put him to death. They're willing to put themselves under this Roman rule and the very powers that they've been fighting against and fighting against and trying to break free from for now for hundreds of years. And so they admit their subjection to Rome so that they will not have to give up their grasp on their victim. 
They're like a, a hyena who will eat any amount of dirt just so we can partake of the meat in the flesh. They're thirsty for the blood of Christ and they'll do anything to have it. So they even acknowledge their subjection to Rome to have Christ as their victim. After all, wouldn't it be better, as Caiaphas said, if one man dies for the whole nation? They could have stoned him. See, they want the crucifixion. They could have stoned him. Go to John. Chapter 8, you have the adulterous woman. They could have stoned him, just as they were going to stone her. You see in John 10, when he says, I and the Father are one, in this great dialogue about being the, the good shepherd. He says, I and the Father are one, and immediately they go and they pick up stones because they're going to stone him. So they could have stoned him, but they wanted to. They wanted the crucifixion. The stoning wasn't enough. Now they want the crucifixion to happen. And this is going to fulfill what, what Christ knows is in the cup before him. John chapter 3, it's already been, Christ knows this is going to be happening. John chapter 3, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, the snake in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then also in John 12, Now is the judgment of the whole world, when the ruler of this world will be cast, will be cast out. And when I, when I am lifted up, Christ says, From this earth I will draw all people to myself. So here is this king, and he's going to be ascending up to his throne, which is the cross. It's beautiful. All right, so we've seen this exchange between the Sanhedrin and Pilate. How they're thirsty for blood, and they'll do whatever it takes. And you see the hypocrisy in their own lives, hopefully. You see it in your own life, because it's there. Now let's take a look at Christ and his exchange with Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters and again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to you. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? You can see it. They're, they're called now. Pilate calls him into the headquarters. Christ will come in. And you can hear the, the, the disdain. In the Greek, the, the you is kind of fronted and given a little more emphasis here. You? Like, are you the king of the Jews? You can, you can hear his astonishment and his, his pity. And his amusement, all in this question. He looks upon this weak and poor and tired and beaten man. 
Kings don't have such a look as this man. And if you do, you're probably on the cusp of losing your kingdom. And eventually he gets to him and says, Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? I know you're not some petty thief in the marketplace. I know that's not it. What have you done? And then look at the response of Christ in verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Christ doesn't deny it. You catch that? Christ is not denying that he is the king, that he is a king. It would have been the easiest way to preserve his life and to go, well, no, I'm not a king. I don't know what it is. He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't deny that he is the king. Yes, I'm a king, but I'm not like you. You, Maybe you, Pilate, you have pomp in your little makeshift praetorian guard. And you, as Pilate, look like an extension of the world. But his kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, is not of this world. Later on, it will say, my kingdom is not from this world. Meaning its, its source is not originating here. Pilate, your source of your kingdom is, is from Rome. It's from the seat of the, uh, Caesar. That's not mine. I have a different source. So is he a king? Yes. Does he have a kingdom? Absolutely. So then how do they relate this kingdom of heaven and this kingdom of earth? Well, Pilate, he needs not fear because the kingdom of Christ, it's not of this world. It's not bubbling out. It's not coming from Mesopotamia. It's not coming from Rome. It's not rising up again from Athens or the Spartans. No, none of that. Don't worry, Pilate. So Pilate doesn't have to worry. However, Pilate absolutely has to worry. Because the kingdom is not coming. It's not coming from the earth. The kingdom is coming down from heaven. And the kingdoms of earth can come and make their assault on the kingdom of heaven, but with no success whatsoever. But now what you hear, have here with Christ in this kingdom is the kingdom of heaven coming down from earth and there's nothing that can stop it. Absolutely nothing that can stop it. It's a recreation of, of Eden. When you have the presence of God, the kingdom of God mingling, and then it was supposed to cover all over the earth, and it didn't happen there. But now it will certainly be happening in Christ and through Christ. So a little recap of these verses. You see, the kingdom is not of this world. John is using this uh, kingdom and king language really common throughout the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John uses this idea of king and kingdom in two places, one with Nicodemus and then here with Pilate. And the vast majority of this language, this idea of being king, is John is putting it right around the events of the crucifixion. So he wants you to see this idea of king and kingdom right in line with, how do we read our Gospels? puts it right in line with this event of the crucifixion. He wants you to see them all together. So that to properly understand the king is to not have it separated from the cross and everything that's happened there. But this is the enthronement of the king. Is right there on the cross.
So Pilate's trying to figure out, who's this king? What is this kingdom? Is this going to be a threat to Rome or is it not? And John, what John is showing us through the gospel is how the kingdom of truth will not only overtake Rome, but it will overtake all of the world because all of the world, all of humanity is in rebellion to the Father. So you see this kingdom of Christ. One, it's not of this world. Two, it's peaceful. His servants could have come. They could have fought. Notice how they're called servants here, not disciples. His servants could have come, could have fought, but they didn't. And then also this kingdom is centered around truth. See in verse 37. Everyone who is of this truth listens to my voice. Who, who are those who are of the kingdom? Those who hear the voice of God, the voice of Christ. Verse 37, we'll keep going. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Absolutely, he is. And it's not as though he claimed the title for himself. It was given to him. And it was even prophesied long ago. Psalm 2, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 132. There I'll make a horn sprout from David. And I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. My enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him a crown will shine. Then we pray through it in the beginning. Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. He's going to come and he's going to be a king, is what Isaiah is saying, with the government being upon his shoulders. And then even Jeremiah in 23, when he's berating these false shepherds who are leading the people of Israel astray. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise, raise up from David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This was long prophesied. Christ didn't make this up and, and pull it from himself. No, this has been ordained by God the Father. And then given to Christ. So here is your king. He's beaten and belittled. He's disdained and he's disowned. disowned. But he is king over all. And the world cannot, cannot comprehend. They cannot understand it. Therefore, the world will mock him. And because they can't understand the nature of his kingdom. The salvation that he brings to his people. They will seek to kill him. Lest they worship him. So here you have it. Your king and his kingdom. What do we do with it? Let's just kind of bring some application from the rest of these verses here. Verse 37. 
For this purpose I have come into the world, Christ says. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Have a singular focus, just as Christ as the king did. Christ as king came. Why did he come? This singular focus. Did he do a multitude of things? Absolutely. John even says, very soon we'll get to it. Books upon books could have been filled. But no, no, no. All he did, multiple things, but there was a singular focus. And what was it? To bear witness to the truth. In the same way, if we're going to be good subjects of this king, have a singular focus. Your mother, good. Your father, good. The purpose of your motherhood, the purpose of being a father is to... Bear witness to the truth. It's not getting in the way. It's the realm in which you do it. So you go off to work and you flush IVs or hang piggybacks or you worry about cap rates and market share. Good. Bear witness to the truth. They're all a means to bear witness to the truth. Every instance, every interaction this week, strive to it. Have this singular focus that your king has to bear witness to the truth. Number two, look at this moment in the life of Pilate. It's quite astounding. It could be yours. It could be you right now. See with this, Pil- this interaction with Pilate and Christ, he has both contempt and awe. Contempt and awe for who Christ is. And you can see the turmoil in his own heart. He, can, he has his contempt when he's looking upon him. You can hear it in his voice. You? Are you the king of the Jews? This is it. But he's also in awe of the man. He says, I find no guilt in him. I find none. I find no guilt in him. So you are a king. You can hear the intrigue, the disdain and the intrigue. But he gives in to the moment and he stains his hands and he stains the judge's robe with blood. Although unaware of it at the time, one of the commentator writes, although unaware of it at the time, Pilate was at the crossroads of his faith. His conscience was pricked, but he did not yield. His conscience was pricked, but he did not yield to the voice of Christ. Perhaps that's some of you right here, right now. You've heard the words of Christ. Your conscience is pricked. You're intrigued, but you also have disdain for all of the demands that Christ makes on your life. What will you do? Well, that's our third point. One, have the singular focus. Two, realize what's happening in Pilate's life. 
with sober recognition that it could very well be happening in your life, that Pilate's at a crossroads of his faith, doesn't even know it. So what do you do? Believe in the work of the king. Look at these last verses here. You see, you have this innocent king who is taking the place of the guilty. Pilate has said, I find no guilt in him. So then Christ takes the, innocent, the place of Barabbas. Barabbas is guilty. Barabbas is a robber. No one's denying that. Barabbas is guilty and Christ is taking his place so that the guilty might go free. Don't you see what is happening here? Christ is innocent and his, he will take the place of the guilty. He, Christ, the innocent one, will drink the cup for Barabbas, the man who's guilty. You wonder who you are in this story? You're Barabbas, the wicked one. If you're in Christ, who has set, been set free by the innocent one. All of this is yours by faith, by believing. So Christ as king bears witness to the truth by drinking the cup of the Father, by taking the place of the guilty, by becoming enthroned upon the cross so that we as Barabbas, we as the guilty ones, those who believe in him and trust in him may be set free. Brothers and sisters, pay homage to the king of kings who has set you free. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give us a prompter affections of awe and fear, of love, servitude towards your Son. Let us delight in him as King. Let us long to serve him as King God. And if there are things, which there undoubtedly are, that are hindering us, pulling us back, God, let us drop them from our lives so that we may serve your Son, may serve Him as King over all things. God, let us, let us bow our knees now in worship, lest we refuse to do it and are forced to do it. An eternity to come, God. Thank you for your son. Amen. Amen.